Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. My next guest, Rear Admiral Sandy Adams, retired from the United States Navy after serving her country for 34 years. She reported to duty on her first ship just four years after women were allowed to start serving at sea. She's had operational command in the Mediterranean, in the Pacific, and in the Middle East. She was the first woman surface warfare officer in the reserves to be promoted to rear admiral. And after the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, she became the first Navy admiral to marry their same-sex partner. Since she retired, Uh, She's volunteered with the California Women's Military Memorial, and I have had the great honor of working with Admiral Adams on uh, activities at the USS Iowa. Please join me in welcoming Rear Admiral Sandy Adams. Welcome to the podcast, Admiral Adams. Thank you, Tanya. So happy to be here. It's wonderful. uh, It's wonderful to have you here. Uh, Quite a privilege. As I mentioned at the outset uh, in my introduction to my viewers and listeners, you were the first woman surface warfare officer in the reserves to be promoted to rear admiral. But that's not the only time you made history because after the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, you were also the first Navy admiral to marry their same-sex partner. Now, Admiral Adams, uh, you had a 34-year career in the Navy before you retired. Uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, I think, only in 2011, like not very long ago. So what that tells us is that for more than half of your naval career, you could not live openly. Uh, What was the experience of that like? A lot like being in America. If you were a GLBT, when I say gay today, I'll refer to that as a more broad term, but I refer to GLBT in that term. Uh, You know, when I first joined the Navy in 1981, uh, no gays were allowed. It was pre-Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And prior to that, I was in high school when the American Psychiatric Association took away homosexuality as a mental disorder. Even in 1981, uh, being gay or acting as being gay was a felony in many states. So when you came into the military, it wasn't a lot different than what it was like in society. Uh, But you certainly are more scrutinized because uh, you're serving for the government. You're under scrutiny. You have a higher standard because you have to protect your country and that kind of thing. And then Don't Ask, Don't Tell started in 1993. Uh, President Clinton tried to allow gays in the military when he came in office, and he wasn't able to get that through Congress, but don't ask to tell where you could be gay, but you couldn't act on being gay if you were in the military. That's where it was until 2011 when it was repealed, and I retired in 2015. So to have that happen while I was still serving was an amazing progress of our country. Uh, it, it sounds like you were so used to the discrimination that the discrimination that you endured in the service was no different than what you endured outside of it. The world for young people today, and certainly for young um, LGBTQ people, is still hard. Um, But I think that it's important that people get a sense sometimes, especially the folks, you know, (laughs) who haven't been around as long as some others, 
um, about how far we've come and what that took and, and what that took of people, what it required of the people who were participating. Uh, talk to us, if you would, Admiral Adams, just a little bit about what it was to be a young woman who knows that they are gay and who is being told that you're actually sick. Uh, what did that feel like? You know, when, particularly before I joined the military, because I, I was 24 when I joined the military, but in my high school years and in college years, there were some politicians some military leaders and some cultural leaders uh, uh, in America who were be using a national stage to tell us that we were sick uh, and worse, immoral and worse. And when you hear those kind of messages, particularly as you're coming into, as I was coming into realization of who I was from a sexuality point of view, uh, you can listen to others, but you have to listen to yourself in your heart. And, it, and I learned to look inward and ask myself, am I a good person? Uh, am I a loving person? Uh, can I love others? Can others love me? And when I found that peace within my own soul, if you would, it helped carry me through and reject some of those kinds of messages that were out there. I'm fortunate that uh, my family was pretty quiet as it came to those topics, so I didn't have to worry about loved ones making comments like that, which frankly uh, happens today to young people and it's something they have to deal with. So um, I was able to build on a, a good self-image because I was able to look inward. Why did you decide to join the military and serve your country well, in that well, way? I'll, I'll tell you, it, it's a bit of a story. Um, I grew up in a military family. Uh, both my grandfathers served during World War One, uh, one for British uh, Army. Uh, my father's parents immigrated to the United States in the 20s. Uh, my other grandfather, Marine Corps in World War One, the Navy. And my father was in the Air Force. I was born on an Air Force base. So I, I grew up around, around a lot of military stories and history and an appreciation for the role our military plays in, in our country's safety. Uh, but nobody was encouraging young women back then to join the military. But I felt a calling when I got into sports. I loved team sports and I started coaching uh, judo and softball to kids. And I felt that calling to leadership, uh, particularly in, in college and as I got out of college. And I thought in 1981, what can a 21, 22, 23-year-old woman, where could she go be a leader? And I knew the military was a place that I could get that chance. And the Navy gave me that chance. You reported Admiral Adams to your first ship in 1982, uh, just four years after women could start serving at sea. So once again, we're talking about uh, some other ground you broke. What was that like? It's only been four years since women can serve at sea. Now you are serving at sea. Uh, how many women were on your ship and, and what? And on what ship were you serving? I served on USS Puget Sound, which was a 20,000 ton large ship in the Mediterranean that had a three-star admiral on board. He was responsible for all Navy forces in the Med. And we had 1,200 sailors on board, of which about 10% were enlisted women, and they were groundbreakers too. And there were, of the 100 officers we had on board, five were women officers, and I was one of those five. Uh, as you can imagine, we were still breaking into uh, uh, this well-established, over 200-year-old culture in the military, uh, in the Navy, per se, at sea. 
And uh, when you get on board, you better start learning your job. Uh, there were some men, I won't deny, that made it a point of telling me I wasn't welcome as a woman. It wasn't about me personally, but I they had told you that they just that straight up. In, you're not welcome here. Officer, you're not welcome. Here. You shouldn't be on a ship, much less in the Navy. Yeah. By the way, the first guy who told me that he was three ranks senior to me. Also, it was a very powerful move on his part and obviously based on a lot of fear from him. But the day I left that ship, he came up to me in the hallway. A man, by the way, I kind of avoided during the two, three years that I was on the ship. Uh, the day I was leaving, he came up to me and he said, I still don't think women should be in the Navy, but you're different. <laughs> and that was the highest compliment. What I, the heck I do you do with that? <laughs> I, I just said, thank you, sir, and just kept walking. But I, I do want to mention the good people that I, that I worked for. There were no women to, that I worked for back then. The men who I worked for, I learned the most from, were the ones who had high bar and high standards, but they had the same for everybody. And those are the men that I learned to appreciate their perspective. I paid attention to what they said, and I ignored the others. So let's go back to that senior officer for a moment, because I feel like there is a lesson there for somebody listening. You had somebody who was senior to you, which means you're not really in a position to kind of engage and, you know, throw back. Well, let me tell you, like, you can't do that. You can't do that in the military. And you certainly, you know, you can't even do it in a lot of other places, frankly, um, when people uh, approach us in ways that are provocative or inappropriate. What were you feeling? What did you say? And what is your advice to a young person who has someone expressed to them that they shouldn't be where they are uh, you know, just because that person has some preconceived notions about who that other person is. So three questions. What were you thinking? What did you say? And how would you suggest that, uh, how would you advise a young person today to respond to something similar? Well, and, and I had some lessons for myself. Uh, first of all, I didn't say anything. I was stunned uh, that he felt like he could say something like that to me. And it was such a hateful thing, I mean, uh, that he said uh, in my mind, I'm calculating how can he hurt me because I'm having to stand there. It wasn't just a one sentence. He was going on for a while about it. And in my mind, I'm thinking, can he hurt me? And I'm like, well, he's not in my chain of command. I don't work for him. I work with him, but I don't work for him. So I knew I had a choice of telling somebody else, but I decided not to. And I avoided him. But at the same time, um, I wasn't naive enough to think that just because people aren't saying it doesn't mean that they don't think it. And so I focused on what I could control, which is training myself, teaching myself, learning from others, being as good at my job as possible, because I didn't want people to see me as a woman officer. I wanted them to see me as an officer, as a good officer. And the way you do it, it takes time. You, you don't just show up on a ship brand spanking new like I was. And all of a sudden, you know everything that's going on. It takes hard work. And you build your reputation. And within six months, your reputation is getting built. You may not know everything, but are you a hard worker? Are you fair? Do you take care of your people? Those kinds of things. And so that's how I chose to take that energy and focus it on uh, what I could do on a day-to-day -day basis within my responsibilities. It's almost, uh, Sandy, as I listen to you speak, it's a reminder of the fact that if you have your purpose clear 
and you recognize that there are always going to be the haters, always. There's never been a moment in this country's history or any country's history where there have not been haters. Um, you can find a way past them, you know, and you may never ultimately change them. I mean, that officer with his uh, quite backhanded, like that's kind of like a double-edged, um, uh, he intended it, uh, he seems to have intended it as a compliment. Yeah, you, you can't change every mind, but you can do your best work. Uh, are you concerned, you know, you're somebody who committed your life to service uh, to country. I mean, that was your passion, that was your profession. You did it because you believe in the country, you believe in our democracy. Um, are you concerned about it right now? Are you concerned about the state of American democracy? I, I am concerned about the state of our democracy. I am hopeful about how things are going because I have a perspective on a far worse time in my, in my experience uh, where I was far more concerned about the state of our democracy than it is today. Not that I'm not concerned now, and I'll come back to that. When I was uh, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, uh, was in the 1960s when we had violent protests uh, happening, riots around the country, throughout the country, uh, where it was the, the explosion of emotions of terrible repression that was happening at the time that people just couldn't take it anymore. We were going through the Vietnam era where two million men were, were uh, drafted, much less the ones who, who volunteered, and thousands were coming home uh, in body bags. It was a, a difficult time. We had peaceful protests going on, led primarily by Martin Luther King, but with violent responses in some places from that. There was so much going on, and then on top of that, in 1968, Martin Luther King and, and Robert Kennedy are assassinated just five years after President Kennedy was assassinated. I thought the world had gone completely crazy. And I credit my parents for continuing to keep my head uh, not too worried about what's going on. We watched the news, we talked about the news, and the news was just 30 minutes every night back then. It's not like the flood of social media that we get and you have to be careful about your sources of what you pay attention to. But from that 50 years ago, I saw our country heal, progress. We're not fully healed. We'll never be the perfect union. It's about the progression of that. But I have seen and felt improvements since those years in the 60s that gives me hope that our time here in the United States today, that we will find a way forward because of the wonderful citizens that we have if they act as a citizen and vote if they act as citizens and vote. Um, gosh, Admiral Adams, uh, it is so important what you just said, because I think that as discouraged as people can feel today, especially because our news is all day and our social media is all the time, and we can't ever escape you know, the news or the images or the opinions, whether info well-informed or not, um, it's so important to remember that like, we are the progress that is happening. Uh, you are now in a marriage that was unfathomable when you entered the military. The notion that uh, you could have married the love of your life and walked into a room with her was unfathomable. 
the notion that I, you know, my mom grew up in Jim Crow, Mississippi. So the world has changed. You know, the world has changed, but it's only because people are willing to do the work. Um, so speaking of the world, uh, you served in the Mediterranean and the Pacific and the Middle East. Uh, your deployments include Afghanistan. What do you think about our the, the U.S. response uh, to Russia's war on Ukraine right now? Do you think that we're doing the right thing? And you know, not not asking you to talk politics, but just sort of from a high level military uh, strategic perspective. Well, I I th do think strategically we are going in the right direction. And when I say we, I don't just mean the United States. I mean the Western world and uh, NATO. Uh, a country has been blatantly attacked and its citizens are being killed. Its uh, infrastructure is being destroyed. There's horrible things going on. And many times that happens around the world. Uh, this is a direct threat to Europe, who are our closest allies. NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty, uh, Treaty Organization, was built after World War II to help prevent wars. And over the 70, 80 years that we've had NATO in place, we have worked together to try to, to prevent World War III. The biggest threat to Europe it can't, was the Soviet Union. And when the Soviet Union uh, fell apart in 1989 uh, and Russia stepped back, then Russia was the only kind of major threat that could happen to Europe. And here it's happening now. Diplomacy will hopefully work. Economic uh, options will hopefully work to pressure backwards because we, we prefer not to go to World War III. If we need to do that to protect the United States and our allies, then we're going to do that. But uh, Ukraine is not a part of NATO. Uh, Poland and Romania, Romania are, who are right next door. And so we're paying very close attention to that borderline there and then doing everything else we can diplomatically and economically, collectively. Uh, to try to deter and, and uh, what Russia is doing. You know, the um, you were talking about Vietnam, and uh, it's, it, I was going to say it strikes me, but it strikes many, many people. I mean, I'm not saying anything novel here. But one of the things that really roused people, uh, roused a lot of Americans to oppose the war, were the images that they saw. I mean, you know, there you had news people on the ground reporting and um, showing folks back at home what was actually going on. And it turned a lot of people off of that war and off of that uh, military involvement. Um, do you think that all of the images that we're seeing of the brutality in Ukraine, uh, do you think that's making people more open to the idea of a conflict where NATO troops and even American troops became involved. Uh, I mean, it's horrific. I don't wear a uniform and, you know, it is not my job to determine, uh, obviously, uh, you know, when to commit American lives to a conflict. But as you look at it, you know, do you think that seeing those images make people want to do more? It's uh, absolutely understandable. I feel the so, same way emotionally to watch what's happening in any country, but what's happening in Ukraine right now is horrible to watch. Um, and it makes you want to respond. But we need to give those economic and diplomatic levers that we're pulling so hard on, give them a chance to work. Let's see what happens. For instance, I've heard a lot of talk about a no-fly zone. If U.S. and NATO 
was to establish a no-fly zone. It's not like we just go in there and everybody stops flying for us. It means we would be having to take down Russian aircraft, and that's a direct attack against two major powers that will absolutely lead to World War III. So for those who may not have as much experience in the military, I would say read, read, read. Pay attention to the experts in the field who are not just military, but the diplomats who are speaking also. Not just the U.S. diplomats, but the European diplomats too. And let's give these levers a chance to work. As someone who has served, as someone who's put on the uniform um, and, and really been prepared to commit their lives, quite literally, uh, to their country, what do you wish civilians would think about or consider before they started, you know, going on TV or on social media, like doing their war dance? You know, so often it's the folks who've never served, don't have anybody in the family who served, who are like, we need to go, you know, we need boots on the ground. We need to do X, Y, and Z, like, you know, fight, fight, fight. Like it's a video game. I think that's where I'm going. So many people treat it like it's a video game. What's something that you wish civilians would consider uh, or think about as we are processing American engagement uh, and involvement around the world? My answer is going to be in twofold. Uh, one is kind of a longer term view, which is study history. Study not just American history, but other history. Uh, there are some fantastic books out there on the Korean War and the Vietnam War that don't just study how many bullets were shot and how many tanks were shot, but it looks holistically at what was going on diplomatically, economically, socially, culturally, uh, right and wrong. With 2020 hindsight, these types of historical perspectives can really help you see how the military and military options for politicians are an option for them, but they're not perfect options as well. But sometimes we must go forward. So learn history. But when you're dealing with it kind of on the spot, like for instance, I'm not an expert in Ukraine. I'm reading quite a bit as much as I can from the New York Times, the LA Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. Uh, I watch PBS NewsHour. I, I think looking at media sources that are well-represented, well-researched, are reliable, and trying to educate myself on what I should consider so that when I vote, because the politicians that, that we vote for and are in office today are in the unbelievable position of having to make decisions, not just for whether to deport or not for money and those kinds of things. So that would be my suggestion. Speaking of history, another part of the world that has had a very long and complicated military history is Afghanistan. Uh, you were deployed there. What did you think about the pullout? Again, studying history, I didn't know much about Afghanistan when I found out I was going to deploy there in 2010. And I, I had six months to prepare, and I read every book I could written by U.S. and foreign, including Central Asian journalists, to try to educate myself a little bit. After I spent a year in Afghanistan, and I had the fortune, uh, good fortune, of working to support an Afghan military uh, three-star and his staff, is they were trying to double the size of their army to keep their government in place during the year that I was there. We got to know each other. I got to hear what it was like. I got to also appreciate the complexities in, of the government because there's many aspects of the culture I so much admire. I might not want to live there, but that's because I grew up in this culture. But that government was struggling to stay in place for a variety of reasons. 
in my opinion, in Sandy's opinion, uh, some of the corruption that is in, endemic with uh, the history of the government that's there. Uh, once we were going to leave, uh, we were going to have to leave one day. And the question was, would the government be able to keep itself going, having the money go into the direction it needed to in order to keep the, the people safe? And it wasn't. I believe that the Afghan army was very brave. Uh, but if you can't get the, the logistics support and the overhead le leadership support you need to, to keep fighting, I think that's why things uh, wrapped up so quickly. There was no question one day we were going to have to leave. We know this of all military operations. The U.S. is famous for we don't stay and take over a place. We were eventually going to leave. I'm just so sorry, having gotten to know some wonderful Afghan people, that it uh, collapsed as quickly as it did. Uh, but I do agree with our decision to leave. Are there people in Afghanistan there now who you know and or are worried about? There are some people there who I know if they're still alive, uh, some being three stars and two stars, they're, they're on the older side and that was 10 years ago. Uh, I do worry for them. The, some of them told me their stories of what it was like under the Taliban. And as difficult as many people assume it was and is for women in Afghanistan, frankly, these men were uh, under threat. Uh, and so I, I appreciate, you know, every deployment I've ever had, you get a chance to get insight to other cultures and people You realize how wonderful people are and how complicated things can be. And I'll I'm a different person because I got to know these brave men and women over there. I feel like I am uh, really fortunate to have been able to meet you. So I'm going to tell everybody how we met. Uh, it was through the USS Iowa, everyone. Go down to San Pedro, go to the USS Iowa, go online, Pacific Battleship Center, the Ma National Museum of the Surface Navy will be opening aboard the Iowa in 2025. Uh, Right, Sandy? We're opening 2025. There it that is. Right the me. National Museum of the Surface Navy opening in 2025 aboard the USS Iowa. But the Iowa is open now. It was through our work uh, with the ship uh, and the ship's museum that I met Admiral Adams. And boy, you know, it, it's just such a reminder that the American story as imperfect as it may be and has been, like all stories, I think it's moving forward in a way that makes me feel, I am optimistic. I am optimistic. I'm optimistic because, you know, this incredible institution, the Iowa, uh, brought me in touch with someone like you. Also, uh, friends, that's how I met uh, Admiral Michelle Howard, um, uh, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago. So I, I feel hopeful about some things. I feel like there's a lot of work ahead, Admiral Adams, for folks in order to keep democracy alive and to keep, but I, I feel hopeful. You know, I, I have to say on the, uh, in the whole, in the main, I am optimistic. Uh, what about you? Are you optimistic? I am absolutely optimistic. And I think that uh, I want you to know why I have confidence in my optimism is because I did serve for 34 years uh, with men and women from all across this country, from all over the United States, all kinds of background. And I watched them. They care about their safety, the security of their family. They care about their financial stability. These are great people. These aren't extremists. The everyday people in our country uh, want that perfect union that we'll never attain, but we will constantly get better. 
the people who join the military, by the way, you join the military usually for one or two reasons that are personal for you, but why do you stay? It's usually because you feel that call to service. Many people who join the military and even only stay four years fall into service roles when they come out of the military using that GI Bill and stuff. They're reinvesting in America. They're not giving up. Everybody, whether you go on in the military or not, be that voter. When I was a kid and I talked about the 60s, I was a passive participant. So scary because I couldn't do anything. Then I turned 18. Now I can act. I can vote. Now I have to focus on being an informed voter. And I've made some mistakes in my voting, in my personal opinion, but I only knew that because I paid attention to the actual actions of the people at the local state as well as national level. Not everything is national. But then as I progressed in my career, and young people today, they will be going this direction too. Then you become a leader in your community and you'll have more opportunities to influence like you are in your community and you're giving me an opportunity to do here. So that those naysayers that we were talking about earlier, well, we don't listen to them as much as we want to listen to the positive voices who have positive plans for this country to continue on the progress. Reread the Constitution, reread our Bill of Rights, everyone, if you haven't done it before, and get re-inspired about why we have to fight for this country in a diplomatic way. Here, here, Admiral Sandy Adams. Uh, what wonderful words. I feel like I want to leave on that very positive and, and optimistic note. Uh, Admiral, thank you for your service. Uh, thank you for the work that you do uh, with the USS Iowa and the Pacific Battleship Center and the National Museum. And um, thank you for being here. And thank you for the conversation. Uh, you've given people a lot to think about. So thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Tanya. I also want to put a plug in for something because there are some naysayers out there. And I like to put ideas of inspiration out there. I'm a volunteer for the Military Women's Memorial. And there is a virtual exhibit online with the militarywomensmemorial.org called The Color of Freedom. And there are many examples there of women of color who have served this country that if you're looking for some inspiration of how Americans help make this country better, please, I hope uh, your listeners will consider looking into that. Thank you for that, Admiral. That sounds like a fascinating exhibit. I'm definitely going to check it out. Thank you, Admiral. Thank you so much for having me, Tanya.